Thanks, Rachel and minister team for awesome event, and thank you guys for volunteering as we reach out to our community. As we continue our study through the book of Exodus today, I just wanted to share with you one of my favorite devotionals that I have at home. It's called Streams in the Desert. How many of you are familiar with Streams in the Desert? Yeah, all right, lots of us. So uh, this has just been so rich and nourishing to my soul over the years, especially during the difficult times uh, of life. It's written by L.B. Kalman. She was a missionary in Japan in the early 1900s, went over there with her husband, and her husband got ill, and um, he had to come back to the States for treatment. Unfortunately, six years after that he did pass away but out of that tragedy out of that heartache out of that desert experience came these rivers of living water that she wrote about and has been a blessing for thirsty souls all around the world for the last hundred years and so uh, my question today as we begin is uh, kind of a sober one have you ever spent some time in the spiritual desert have you ever spent some time in the spiritual desert Desert. You know, sometimes God allows us to go through difficult seasons like that. I certainly remember one particular season uh, coming to mind in my life. It was a very dry season, it was a, an empty season. Uh, those kinds of seasons are mar- marked by confusion. They're seasons that are marked by a little disorientation. They're seasons where you can't quite figure out what the Lord is doing. They're, they're, there's tough losses, there's moments there that uh, feel almost unbearable. And so maybe you've been through a season like that. Uh, Perhaps there was an experience in your life where there was a a death of a loved one, maybe a death of a spouse or a spouse growing chronically ill or maybe even the death of a child or maybe you went through a a bitter divorce or maybe it was the closing of your business uh, or some other challenge. Uh, There's seasons in our lives that just feel so much like a desert. In those seasons, we're thirsty. We are spiritually thirsty for water, and we're hungry, desperately in need of some nourishment for our souls. Uh, Take a look at this quote from the devotional that struck my attention, where the writer says this, the education of our faith is incomplete if we have yet to learn that God's providence works through loss, that there is a ministry to us through failure and the fading of things, and that he gives the gift of emptiness. I don't know about you, but emptiness typically doesn't feel like much of a gift. Thank you very much. You can have your emptiness gift back, Lord. That's usually the way I feel about that kind of gift, right? I like the happy times, the times of faith-building seasons. You remember last week we were in the story of Exodus, and it was the watershed event from the book of Exodus. The most spectacular miracle in the whole Bible uh, was part of our passage. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. The Lord vanquished all of their enemies, and uh, they sang this song of worship. Who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness, working wonders, so incredibly awesome, right? The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And remember that we started way back in Exodus 1 where the people of Israel were enslaved. They were in bondage. They were crying out. They were groaning to the Lord. And now here we are in Exodus 15. They've been set free and they've been liberated. They've been saved. They've been delivered and they're worshiping and glorifying God. And it was just awesome, But the thing about this that we need to recognize is that oftentimes, not just a couple of times, like not just infrequently, but oftentimes spiritual highs are followed by spiritual lows in life. Mountaintops are often followed by times in the valley. Triumphs are often followed by tribulations. And we enjoy God on the mountaintop. It's amazing. It's powerful. But friends, we experience God intimately 
in the valley below. Have you ever gone from the mountaintop to the wilderness? Maybe some of you, things in your life seem to have been going great. Like maybe you were in a great relationship and then suddenly you found out somebody wasn't being honest with you and you went from the mountaintop to the wilderness. Or maybe in 2019, your business was growing and doing really well and you went from the mountaintop into the wilderness of 2020 and beyond. What do we do when we go from the mountaintop to the wilderness, from the good times to the tough times? How do we get through seasons like that with any kind of comfort, encouragement, and hope? That's what Exodus chapter 16 is all about. So join me there, if you will, in your copy of the Word of God. A little context as we look at this. We're now entering into the second phase of the book of Exodus. There's really three phases in Exodus that you can think about geographically. Chapters 1 through 15 has the Israelites in Egypt they are in bondage, and, and we're working on getting them out. Chapters 15 through 19 are the Israelites on their way to Mount Sinai. It's a journey, and it's about a three-month journey. And then chapters 19 through 40 are the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and they will remain there until the end of the book of Exodus. And so here we're looking at Exodus chapter 16 as they're on the way. You're going to see three different movements to the message this morning to follow along. First, we're going to see the grumbling then we'll see the testing, and then we're going to see the bread sent from heaven itself. The grumbling, the testing, and the bread sent from heaven. So that's where we're headed, and we do need the Lord's help for that. So would you pray with me as we enter into a time of God's Word? God, I pray for my friends here today, especially of those who maybe can really, really relate to that time in the desert, even right now. Uh, we know you tell us in your word that no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly, but that doesn't always mean it's easy. Sometimes it's confusing and sometimes it's painful. And so would you take from this passage some timeless principles and truths for my friends and give us all some practical steps that we could take in our lives in careful obedience to you. And so we come to your word as always with great expectation. We come hungry. We come thirsty. Lord, this is your word, and we know that we don't live just on bread alone. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, there's no other passage in the Bible that makes that more clear than the one that we're going to look at today. And so we ask you to satisfy us with good things. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not would you make us. For your beautiful name we pray. Amen. There's three very similar stories in Exodus 15, Exodus 16, and Exodus 17. There's the story of Mara, there's the story of manna, and then there's the story of Massa. That's how I remember them. The Mara story is about bitter water, and Moses sends a piece of wood into the water, and God makes it sweet. In Exodus 16, which we'll look at today, that's the story of the manna and the quail. And then in chapter 17, Moses actually strikes a rock, and water comes out of a rock. We don't have time to look at all three stories. Though they're similar, they do have different principles. I, I think chapter 16 is where I'd like to camp out for this morning. So take a look at that with me. If you're ready for God's word, say amen. amen. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. 
Now, don't confuse the word seen there with our concept of sin in English. There's no relationship between those two words whatsoever. This was a desert in that area or a wilderness in that area. It's a term that the Bible uses a lot to refer to a place where there, no biological life can be sustained, at least for any length of time, and certainly no human life can be sustained for any length of time. Now, why are they there? Why are they in the desert? The answer is that God led them there, that God actually led them Right there. Now, I want you to think of the significance of that because even though they're purchased out of slavery, even though they've come out of Egypt, they don't go right into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, here they go to a, a season of wilderness desert wandering for a time of trials and a time of testing. And friends, isn't that exactly how God continues to work today? See, here's what's true the promised land can only be reached by the way of the wilderness. The promised land can only be reached by the way of the wilderness. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Acts 14, 22. We must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. And Catherine of Aragon famously said, None get to God but through trouble. You might say, Pastor Dave, what are you saying? Are you saying God is responsible for, the, for the, all the terrible and evil things in this world? Well, no. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, when God creates everything, the land, the sea, the birds, the, 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 the fish, the animals, all, all of creation, it doesn't say there that he actually created a desert. He didn't say, oh, right over there, I'm going to make a dry and desolate place with no water, uh, just lots of heat and, and no life. No, it doesn't say he made something like that. The deserts of this world are here because of sin. Sin is always our doing, not God's doing. For now, though, we live in this fallen world, and we live in the wilderness, and we're on our way like they were on their way to the promised land. Now, think about this. As a pastor, sometimes I'll ask people about, like, key moments in their lives. Like, what if I give me two or three examples of like milestones in your life. Give me like things that you went through that altered the trajectory of your life, key moments that shaped you into who you are today. What I find fascinating is that nobody comes up to me and they're like, you know, there was this car that I bought 10 years ago that really changed everything. Nobody comes up to me and they're like, you know, Dave, it was the iPhone 12. That's what really did it for me. After that, my life was just never the same. No, no. They tell me about all these unbelievable stories of them in the wilderness, stories that involved a lot of difficulty and pain, and they go, yeah, it's awful. There was this disruption that I experienced that created for me a whole new life, though. It was brutal. Uh, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy, but out of that wilderness came for me all these new possibilities in my life. Now, I know that's not what we want to hear, but this is life after Eden. We live in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. I know that's not a comfortable type of sentiment, but as the Mandalorian says, this is the way. Verse 2 goes like this. Some of you got that. Verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now notice that word grumbled. 
It's used nine different times in the first 11 verses of chapter 16. The word literally means to complain, to quarrel, or to murmur with a sense of contempt. We're hungry. We're thirsty. I don't like it here. We used to sit around with a lot more food than this. Now we're starving. We want to go back to where we started. That's how I imagine them talking here. Do you guys ever get whiny voice? I, sometimes I get whiny voice when I'm in this kind of mood. Parents, you ever have your kids talk to you like that in, from the back seat of a long road trip? Or elementary school teachers, does this sound familiar? Your students ever like have a mutiny where they're kind of like building their case against you? This is the children of Israel right here. And notice it's not just a couple of them. Verse 2 says it's the whole community. This grumbling, complaining spirit has become infectious. And so here's the problem I think that they're facing. The Israelites struggled to trust God because they were too focused on their troubles. The Israelites struggled to trust God because they were too focused narrowly on their troubles. Now, at first we think, how could they possibly not trust God at this point? After all that God had done for them, he heard their groaning, he heard their cry, he sent a deliverer, Moses, to, to lead them out. God sent not one, not two, not three, but ten different plagues on their enemies, and then he opens up the Red Sea and allows them to cross on dry ground, and, and he eliminates the entire Egyptian army in the process, and we think, how could they do this after all God has done? for them. I mean, how many times does God have to demonstrate his power for his people for them to exercise just a little bit of faith? It seems like they're losing perspective. It seems kind of baffling, but if I'm honest with myself, I have to admit I have a lot more in common with these Israelites than I would care to admit. As I read this story, if I'm reading it properly, I am reading the Word of God like a mirror. This is a picture of of me. I tend to do this. God has worked mightily in my life, and still the next hurdle that comes my way, I struggle to trust him again. I forget. Yes, he did something amazing, but God, that was so two days ago. I need you like right now. That was last week. What have you done for me lately? That's their, that's their attitude. I, I tend to focus on what I want, not on what I need. I, fo I focus on what I don't have. I'm, I, I don't focus on, I focus on what I don't have, not on what I have. And I, and I start to grumble. I start to complain. And it's not good. Uh, let me put that slide back up there again. If you go to the next slide, the Hebrew word for grumbling is not just a disgruntled kind of complaining. Uh, one commentator defines it this way. This was an open rebellion against God and God's messenger. Now, here in the text, they're complaining against Moses and Aaron and their spiritual leaders, accusing them of attempted homicide, if you didn't catch that, actually, which is absurd. But that's kind of what we do when we get upset or afraid or worried. We, we tend to take out those frustrations on those that are closest to us, right? In this case, Moses is right there, so they're angry with Moses. But who are they really angry with? They're angry with God. See, this is what psychologists call displacement. Their grumbling is really an accusation, not against Moses, it's against God. This is them putting God on trial, and this is what we do when we grumble. God, you're not running the world the way I think you should be running the world. That's why grumbling is so displeasing to the Lord, because it's a rebellion. Now, there's a premise underneath of our grumbling that we may... Uh, 
think of as an unexamined kind of premise. And it goes something like this. If I live right, then my life should go right. That's the premise behind grumbling. If I live right, my life should go right. Now, if that's true, if that's what you think is true, every desert experience you will ever face, every wilderness you will ever walk through will make you really angry. You will be angry either at yourself for not living right because things aren't going right, so it must be your fault, or you'll be angry at God because you think you are living right, so God then is expected to be coming through with his end of that particular bargain. But what if that premise is wrong? What if God wants me to trust him and serve him anyway? Not just when things go well with me. What if I just have to serve him because he's worthy? Isn't that the whole point of the book of Job? Satan comes to attack God and say, God, nobody really actually serves you. Nobody actually loves you. Job doesn't serve you for nothing. He serves you because of what you're doing for him. And then the whole book of Job is that working itself out of that theological problem. And Job actually says, no, no, God is worthy. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If we can have that kind of faith through the wilderness, that kind of faith in the desert, and bless God when things are abundant, and also bless God when things are lacking, I think that's glorifying to the Lord. Now, some have pointed out here that these verses on the screen actually um, reflect what's called the language of addiction. And um, this is kind of like the language of denial, if you will. If you take a look a little bit more carefully there. When they were in Egypt, I seem to remember, you've been through Exodus with me, most of you, right? They hated it. They were crying out. They were grumbling in Exodus, in the beginning chapters of Exodus, right? I don't remember this sort of version of history that they've whitewashed and said, remember, it was awesome. We were sitting around with pots of meat and there was plenty to eat and everything was going great. Remember that? See, that's what we do. When we, when we grumble, we have to rewrite the past, and we have to kind of screen out all the bad stuff that was in the past and filter that stuff out and remember it with kind of a selective memory, and that allows us to grumble against the Lord. But it's a delusional way of thinking that reminds me of what you hear from an addict. It was, it was okay back then when I was enslaved and in bondage to that particular substance. Things weren't so bad. It's like that Sarah Grove song where she sings, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what lacks. You see, that's what we do when we return to our sin. Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, a dog returns to his vomit. We, we tend to forget how bad things were back in bondage. That's the nature of sin. And so even though they're technically out of slavery, in their hearts, they're still slaves. See, Philip Riken the commentator on Exodus says it so well. He says, it was much easier to get them out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of them. See, getting the people out of slavery can happen quickly. It's instant. It's like a political move. It's like a military move. You're in bondage. Now I set you free. But getting the slavery out of the people, that is a long, drawn-out process. Legally, they're set free, but they have not yet learned to be and think and work out their freedom in their lives. It's like a young adult who gets some new freedoms. He's 18. He's not quite sure how to be responsible with it. 
There's kind of an abuse of privilege at times. Maybe no longer having a bedtime, they stay up all night, then they regret it the next day, right? You have to work out this new freedom in a way that's practical, helpful, and, you know, uh, that works in your life in a healthy way. Or today's Halloween, right? Later on today, you're going to pass by 400 pieces of chocolate, okay? <laughs> now, in a way, you, you, you're going to have to learn this lesson right here. You can either take your freedom and use it responsibly, or you can uh, just allow yourself to uh, regret your misuse of your freedom uh, tomorrow morning, right? That, that's the whole purpose of God's law. It's there to protect us and to guide us with his standards so that we can enjoy the life that he has for us. We're free, but we need to work out this freedom in a way that honors God. That's true for them, but it's true for all of us too, friends. This is a picture of the Christian life. This is a process, and it's a process that, re- that occurs where? In the wilderness. It occurs in the desert. This is a process that occurs in the problems in our lives. That's when God begins to do his best work on our hearts, which leads us to movement too. There's no quick fix in spiritual maturity. There's no zapping in spiritual maturity. It's a long process. It's a long, long obedience in the same direction, Eugene Peterson says. So we move to movement too, the testing. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is looking back on this time of journeying through the wilderness, and he gives a few sermons. Let me just read you one verse out of one sermon that gives some insight here. Moses says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years? Why? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart? Notice the test. What's the nature of this test he's talking about here? Is it like at school, like pass-fail? No. The tests for the children of God are always formative. They're always for character development. When bad things happen to us, the children of God, when we find ourselves in the desert, in the wilderness, it is never for your punishment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is not retributive. It's not tit for tat. Our Father's testing is always for our training. It's always for our development. It's always for our discipline. It's always for our good. He's growing me. He's changing me. He's molding me into the image of the Son. So no matter how many times I fail, you'll see the patience of God come in the book of Exodus and give his people another try, another try, another try, because that's the mercy and patience of God during the season of testing. The whole purpose of the wilderness is not vindication, It's not retribution, it's education, it's training, it's progressive sanctification is the big word. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look with me on the screen if you would. He says this, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. That's the way he thinks of them, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now that word glory there is significant. It comes up a lot in Exodus. It means weight. It means a heaviness. The word glory means a substance, right? That's our destiny as God's people, glory. But it's not just for the life to come. This begins in this life. You know, you've met people who kind of live like a semi-charmed life, so to speak, that everything's gone right for them. They've kind of had it easy, 
right? Silver spoon. Ever since they were a child, they had great looks, affluence. Everything's always fallen in place for those kinds of people. You know anybody like that? When you get to know them, sometimes you find out they're not a person of substance. There's a superficiality about them. There's a weightlessness about them. Why? That's because they've never gone through anything. Why? No suffering, no glory. That's the deal. Those types of people are not really, um, they're not really great at relationships. They don't have much empathy. They can't really sympathize with you. If you have a problem, they can't, either can't relate to you because they haven't had that kind of problem, or they kind of judge you, thinking that they would have done it better than you, when they really just have no idea what you're going through. Or that kind of person, they, they, know, they don't have much insight or wisdom into how life works, really, because they haven't really gone through the wilderness. If you want to be a wise person, if you want to be a person of substance, it only happens in the wilderness. This is the way it's set up. Now, I know that doesn't sound like good news. That's not what we want to hear. But it's really good news because anytime we face something difficult, John Piper says it this way, not only is all your affliction momentary, commenting on this verse, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it right now is still totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that trial. Piper goes on to say, I don't care if it's cancer or criticism, slander or sickness, it wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's working in you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, Paul says, don't lose heart. And so we need to be able to say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I want to grow. I want to achieve all that God has for me and reflect him the best that I can. Now, I know we don't want to hear this. I know this is an uncomfortable message. Last week, we were singing God's praises and glorifying him. This is a little bit more of a tough pill to swallow. Uh, we're Americans, right? I mean, we, we would prefer to get fixed up like going into surgery, like, like we're going to go under anesthesia for this. Lord, you're the great physician, okay? Make me like you. Okay, make me mature, but put me out I'm just going to lie right here. You just do whatever you need to do. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to even know what's happening. Just put me to sleep. When I wake up, I want to be mature and I want to be wise. It doesn't work that way. You know, God doesn't zap people into character formation. Again, a quote from Streams in the Desert. She says, nearly all of God's jewels are crystallized tears. See, God is working in you an eternal weight of glory, and he's using your circumstances in the desert to do so. Going back to the text of Exodus, take a look at the nature of this test a little bit more carefully, where it records this in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Again, notice the word test there. Now, the nature of this test right here is a test of dependence. It's a test of trust. And notice something else. Did you notice that God commands his people to go out and gather their own manna? Now, why is that? 
they could have said, you know, Lord, I'm hungry, and then whenever they said, Lord, I'm hungry, they pray, and then the, the food just magically shows up like in their esophagus or in their stomach or something like that. He doesn't do it that way. He provides the manna out there and commands them cooperatively to go get the manna and gather it in. And friends, that is because sanctification is a cooperative process. Unlike justification, which is almost totally passive. You remember the Red Sea crossing. That took very little effort on their part at all. They just simply walked across the Red Sea and trusted God. The Passover, the Red Sea, those are pictures of salvation. Salvation is a gift to be received. We celebrate today, Reformation Sunday, where we remember the gospel is by faith alone. But yet sanctification, that is an entirely different Endeavor. Here they are participating in their own provision now. Do you see that? Now there's effort being expended on their part. Friends, when we work out salvation in the sanctification process, that is a cooperative effort where we are now working that which God is working on the inside of us. And we are called to be active participants. The reformers said it this way, yes, we're justified by faith alone, but we are never justified by a faith that is alone. It will always be followed by, and faith will be pregnant with, good works. And so this is the test here. And it's a process where we participate. Uh, Drop down with me to verse 14. It says this, When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Literally, the Hebrew word manna means, like, what is it? Like, whatchamacallit type of thing. For they did not know what it was. It's pretty amazing. God provides bread from heaven. Um, People have speculated over the years about what this substance could have been. I I don't really know. Some people say there's a liquid honeydew that's left behind by a certain number of cicadas or insects that gets solid and then rapidly evaporates, and that seems really, really gross to me. But hey, I don't know. Maybe it was that. I don't know. Other people have said that it's this other substance that grows on rocks and it produces these little pea-sized globulates and then the wind kind of drives it here and there and and it evaporates. Other people say it's this indigenous tamarisk thing that's uh, a species kind of like takes the carbohydrates out of this plant and then makes like, you know, some sort of uh, crystallized high fructose product out of it that's, that's present in that arid area. I don't know. You can speculate, chase that down on your own. Here's what I do know. It was a miracle. God provided food for his people to eat. Verse 15 goes on to say this. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed every single day for 40 years. I mean, they had baked manna, fried manna, pineapple, upside-down manna, (laughs) manna pudding. You've seen the cookbook, 101 Different Ways for Preparing Manna, right? They could have made some money on that thing. Numbers 11 says that they prepared it in a variety of different ways. They they ground it, they beat it, they baked it in pans. But the point is God provided for his people miraculously. The manna comes, the bread of God comes every single day. Now, I love me some bread. I'm like a, you know, a little too much. Bread is, is, is my thing. 
I, I love that, that bread that they give you at Olive Garden. I could just eat that whole thing of bread and then forget the dinner, right? That's, that's just good stuff right there. My, when I got married into an Italian family, they had panettone bread. Have you tried that kind of bread? Oh, my goodness. Panna is the Italian word for bread, and then tone is the guy down the street at the pizza place. Who's, uh, I was just kidding about that. But good stuff, good bread. Not as good as manna. This stuff was sweet, and it was, I can say that because I'm from an Italian family. It was, it was delicious, and they lived on this sustenance every day for 40 years. And the test was, will you trust me every day? Will you trust me every morning to provide this for you? Verse 19, Moses gives a stipulation here. It says, then Moses said to them, here's the thing, though. No one is to keep any of it until morning. And now we have the disobedience in verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now you might say, what's the big deal? What was wrong with them keeping a little extra? This sounds wise. This sounds like, you know, what I do in my basement. I have shelves. There's cans of tomatoes and stuff down there. Seems like a good idea to be prepared for a rainy day. You never know what's going to come. But really, this lesson was to teach the children of God that they were supposed to live every day by God's provision. They were supposed to live in dependence on God. And not just dependence on God, but dependence on God alone. This was the test for God's people. And what he wants for them and for us is to learn that whatever jam you get into, will you trust me to get you out of it every day? But their storing up and hoarding of manna was their way of saying, like I say, I would rather be a little bit more independent of God. But God says, Dave, if you want a relationship with me, you have got to learn something. You are completely dependent on me. I know you don't think you are sometimes, but even when you don't think you are sometimes, you are still dependent upon me. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Depend on me. Depend on me. This is the lesson that they needed to learn. And it's a powerful testimony of God's provision. So even though they fail, what we learn here is that God continued to deliver Israel to show that he's perfectly reliable. Again and again and again, God will continue to deliver Israel to prove, to show he is totally, perfectly reliable. This is, I think, what our Lord had in mind when he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The book of Exodus chapter 16 goes on to end with this verse in verse 35. It says, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years. Until they came to a land that was settled, they ate manna until they reached the borders of Canaan. Forty years straight, the faithfulness of God shows up for them, not every week, every morning. There's some irony here in the story. When they were living in Egypt, that is a fertile region. The Nile River is everywhere. There should have been an abundance of food for the people of God, but there wasn't. Here in the desert, though, in this barren, barren place, there shouldn't have been any food, and there was. And I think what we need to know, what we need to learn right here, friends, is that the very best places in life without God are still barren. And the very worst places we can ever find ourselves in life, the deserts and the wilderness with God, can still be sweet. Pastor Craig Groeschel says it so well. He says, your deepest need 
becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. Your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. When you're in the desert, what we learn then is all the other sources of our strength dry up. And sometimes we don't learn this lesson until all the other sources of our nourishment dry up. Sometimes we really don't learn that God is all we need until we get into a place in our life where God is all we have. And then when we get there, we realize he's enough. See, that's the power of the desert. And that's the only place that God can teach us that lesson. That God really is sufficient. That God really is enough. Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas, who went through this brain tumor and seizure and, 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 and brain cancer and surgery and all that stuff, said this right after he uh, got done with his surgery. He said, quote, It is not cruel, unjust, or wicked of God to wound you in such a way that it knocks out from under you the props of self-reliance and puts your reliance completely on him. It, it is not cruel of God at all to take you from what might lead you, take from you, it's not cruel of God at all to take from you what might lead you into an eternity of sorrow to give you sorrow now that leads to an eternity of ever-increasing joy. And so there's a benediction that Brendan Manning used to give that went like this. So may all your expectations be frustrated. And may all your plans be thwarted. And may all your desires be withered into nothingness so that then you might come to know and understand and experience the powerlessness and dependence and poverty of a child and then learn that God is enough and you will sing with joy and dance in the love of your Father. You know the Apostle Paul learned about this? You remember that story where he talks about like some thorn in his flesh? And he had something he wanted God to do. It doesn't say. Like, but we do know he didn't get the answer that he wanted. We, we don't know exactly what it was. People speculate, is it something physical? Is it something personal? Is it something spiritual? We simply don't know. But what we do know is it was terrible. It was tormenting him. And he literally wanted God desperately to take this thorn away. And so he prays earnestly three times for God to take this thing away. And then God says to him this, my grace is sufficient for you. Wow. Now that's not the answer Paul was hoping for, but that's the answer he got. And I gotta be honest with you, friends. God might give you a similar answer in your life. You might be praying for something and God is just not answering like the way that you thought he should be answering. And God says to you, I know you don't understand, Dave, what I'm doing, but my grace is sufficient for you. I know you don't see why I won't answer the prayer the way you think I should answer your prayer, but my grace is sufficient for you. I know you think your life would be so much better if you had that one thing you're praying for, but my grace is sufficient for you. I know you think you got it all figured out, Dave. My grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes it's in the desert that we learn the secret of letting go of all of our grumbling, the secret to being content, as Paul said, whether I abound or whether I'm abased, is that God's grace really is sufficient for me. When I find myself in the wilderness, I realize he's all my soul really needs. 
which leads me to movement three. The bread sent from heaven. See, 1,500 years later, we learn that this manna was a picture of something much greater, wasn't it? In John chapter 6, Jesus gives a famous discourse right after he did a famous miracle, feeding 5,000 people with just a couple of fishes and five loaves of bread. And a miracle there kind of reminds us of the provision of bread in Exodus, to be honest. But after that miracle, Jesus is in this conversation with some other rulers of Israel, and they're asking him some questions. Take a look at verse 30 with me. It says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, it's interesting here to notice that after he does this amazing miracle, which wasn't the first miracle in the Gospel of John, he's done several so far, but after he does this miracle, they ask him for a sign, and he does not respond by saying, don't you know I just did a sign? He doesn't respond that way. He actually responds by saying, don't you know I am the sign? Take a look as he continues in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And of course, as usual in the Gospel of John, they're thinking the physical realm. But what Jesus means here is that that manna from heaven was a picture of me. In John chapter 6, he repeats this 10 times. Verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, the Jews are grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 46, he has come down out of heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread which has come down out of heaven. Verse 51, I am the bread which has come down out of heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Again and again and again, he continues to say, I am not an ordinary person. Jesus Christ is not a good teacher. The Bible tells us he's the eternal son of God who existed before eternity even began. The council of Chalcedon says, God from God, light from light, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father. Jesus is the gift from the Father sent down out of heaven. And that's why he tells us in the next verse, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the thing about manna, and here's the thing about bread, and here's the thing about food. Without food, you can't keep living. I know that seems like a really simple truth, (laughs) but without food, you can't keep living. I go to the grocery store, and I, I get all the food that our family needs for the week, and, and uh, they give me one of those receipts, right? It's like two feet long, three feet long, four feet long. It's an itemized list of all the food our family is going to consume, because here's the thing about our family. Without food, they can't keep living. What Jesus Christ is saying here is that without me, you can't keep living either. You're an eternal spiritual being. God has placed in you a longing, a hunger, a spiritual hunger. And so we learn this important lesson in the wilderness wanderings. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever, ever, ever satisfy the hunger that's on the inside of you, the longing that's inside of you, except a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
let me put that on the screen. Nothing will ever satisfy that longing on the inside of you except Jesus Christ. In every human heart, there's a hunger. Carl Jung used to say everyone has a longing for security. Adler said all human beings have a deep longing for significance. Freud said everybody's hungry for love. Blaise Pascal said it best. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and woman which cannot be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. In response to that hunger, friends, Jesus comes to you and me and says, I'm the bread of life. Because of that, St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Friends, Jesus here is the true manna, the one who is with us and who sustains us in the desert. He is the bread of life. While we may not understand everything about our time in the desert, we do understand that he is with us and that he is sufficient and that he is enough. And one day when he returns, he will bring streams to every single desert of this world. And that is our great hope. As the worship team comes to lead us in one final song, Allow me to close with one last devotional from Streams in the Desert. The author writes about this time where she saw a man that was drawing some black spots on a white piece of paper. And she said she looked at the black spots and she couldn't make anything of them except for some random assembly of some black spots. And that's kind of like life in the wilderness. We have these things that we encounter, we go through, and we can't make any sense of them. But then she said, then the artist continued and, and he started drawing some lines around the spots. And suddenly she realizes, I think these are musical notes. And if we will let God begin to draw the lines around our dots, our, our desert places, and, and make the adjustments he needs to make, we'll begin to notice some kind of harmony. And then she said, I recognized finally what song he was scoring out. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. See, sometimes God brings us into the wilderness to teach us, to refine us, but he sustains us there. And he uses that time in our lives to bring more praise and honor and glory to him because he's enough. He is the bread of life. Can we pray? God, thank you for your word that you've preserved here. Thank you for my friends today who are listening to your word, who may be experiencing a time of the desert and the wilderness even right now. I pray that we would experience you as the true bread of life, that you would meet with us here in this place of our deepest need, and that you might satisfy us with good things and show us your goodness and grace so that we might turn and praise you and glorify you no matter what we face. For you are worthy of our praise. You are the God from whom all blessings flow. And we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.